HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. HRN is food radio supported by you. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. Well, hello. Welcome to All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Sherry Bayer, and it is Friday, March 3rd, 2023. This show will be airing next Wednesday, March 8th, and this is our 350th episode of this series, which is dedicated to behind-the-scenes talent in the hospitality industry. Today, my guest is an internationally recognized chef and restaurateur who is based on the West Coast, but he is on location today with me in New York City and I will introduce him fully in a moment. First, as I do on every show, I will start out with my PR tip. Then later, we will have my speed round game, industry news discussion, solo dining experience, and the final question. As the founder of Bayer Public Relations, I'm going to tip the show off with my PR tip of the week. So today's tip is to celebrate your wins and the success of others too. Yes, it's important to focus on the good stuff, acknowledging what we've achieved, whether big or small, and take a moment to simply feel good about our accomplishments. Celebrating wins not only triggers feelings of pride and happiness, but it helps us stay motivated working towards our next goals. And as they say, a rising tide lifts all boats. So let's remember to always celebrate all victories. That's my tip today. Okay, I'm super excited to have my guest joining me in person in New York City. It is David Kinch. He's an internationally recognized chef with more than two decades of culinary excellence at his three Michelin-starred restaurant, Manresa, in Los Gatos, California, which was also a Relais Chateau property and named one of the top 50 restaurants in the world. Among his many accolades, David was nominated for the James Beard Foundation Outstanding Chef Award in 2014 and received the Foundation's Best Chef Pacific Award in 2010. His first cookbook, entitled Manresa, an edible reflection, debuted in October 2013 and was number 19 on the New York Times bestsellers list. David is also the proprietor of restaurants The Bywater, Mentone, and Manresa Bread, and he's a ChefWise contributor. 
Without further ado, hi, David. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Thank you for joining me. I'm thrilled to have you here, have this conversation. And episode 350, it's a good number. Congratulations. (laughs) Thank you. It's kind of crazy. (laughs) But I've gotten here. So so I always like to start out with my my guests and find out about their background and what led them into the industry. So you want to take us back a little bit? Sure. Um, You know, I was originally born on the East Coast in, in... In Pennsylvania, I was born in Philadelphia, uh, but I was a bit of an oil brat. My, my father worked uh, the job that my father worked uh, work took him to a lot of different places. So I moved around a lot uh, in the Deep South, and uh, I ended up in New Orleans at one point in time, right when I was beginning high school. And I, my experience of living and growing up in New Orleans really dramatically changed my life, and. and uh, and of course, you know, New Orleans has a wonderful food scene. Uh, it has, uh, everyone talks about what they're going to eat next. People talk about what they're going to eat for dinner while they're having lunch. Um, I took some work in restaurants after school, uh, just to earn some money and that sort of thing. And I immediately fell in love with what I felt was like a real tribal aspect of the restaurant industry. Everyone... Uh, worked very, very hard. They looked out for each other. There was a real team-like atmosphere. And uh, for the pleasure of guests, the happiness of guests. And I was really kind of enamored with how, you know, this this controlled chaos in the back of the house um, ended up being this kind of serene, pleasure-giving principle. And, and I was really fascinated by it. Uh, I worked a little bit in the front of the house, and then I ended up back in the kitchen. I was mesmerized by what was going on back in the kitchen. It's more of a pirate-like atmosphere back there in the mid-'70s, and uh, it satisfied my desire to work with my hands, be creative, um, create something, and get some sort of instant gratification from it, You know, whether it was the approval of my chef or whether knowing that guests were really, really pleased with what the team came Another thing I noticed also is that when I was working in a kitchen and working with my hands, I really immersed myself and the rest of the world went away. Problems went away. Everything else went away. And I fell in pretty deeply. Uh, I devoted my life at a very young age to to be a chef, uh, to be a restaurant owner, and to have the best restaurant I could possibly create. Yes. So you went to Europe for a bit to cook? Yes, and you uh, spend a lot, of, a great deal of many yeah, years. I was there. I was working I was working in New Orleans, and uh, you know, back then, you know, things have changed dramatically. But back then, New Orleans was had kind of a reputation for being a city with five thousand restaurants and five recipes. Huh. Um, everybody kind of cooked the same thing. You know, it was very tradition based, and a lot of people didn't venture that much off the beaten path. Um, so my, my goal was to get, uh, to New York and eventually to go to France. France was the real true epicenter of gastronomy. Um, a lot of those old French Nouvelle Cuisine chefs were my heroes. I kind of tried to absorb everything I could to learn about them, which was pretty hard to do pre-internet. It's kind of hard to figure out, you know, well, your whole basis of information is like a Time Magazine article as opposed to like just going on the internet and... Yeah. So my goal was to go and work in France, really to go to where, you know, the meat of the industry was and to learn there. Um, so I took a small school trip, 
trip after graduating from culinary school, Johnson and Wales in 1981. But in 1984, I was afforded the opportunity to go and for my first trip and work in Europe, which was about nine months in 1984. Okay. And then you came back and you went to the West Coast. I came back and I lived in New York City. I was, oh, yes, you were I was, here. Yeah, I was here for I was here for just a little over six years. Uh, I, I worked, missed you. Yeah, I worked at uh, my time here. with Christian Delubrier. Oh, okay. When he was at the Parker Meridian Hotel, uh, restaurant was called uh, Le Maurice. Uh, a little bit of time at a little French bistro on Lexington Avenue called uh, Petite Ferme, La Petite Ferme. Uh, and the reason why I spent time there was that the owner's brother was the the gentleman who owned the restaurant and hotel that I went and worked for in France. And uh, and then I spent my last four and a half to five years in New York working at the Quilted Giraffe for Fairy Wine. Oh, wow. Amazing. Yeah. You said you said about opening, being the best you could be and opening your own place. Was that a desire you had very early on? Yeah, I think so. I, you know, I fell under the spell of one particular book. I don't think I'm the only chef of a certain age that would tell you this, but there's a book by two guys, Quentin, Crew, and uh, what was the other guy's name? Blake, some of the two English guys. They wrote a book called The Great Chefs of France. And it was biographies of uh, the great Nouvelle Cuisine chefs in France, about 12, 14 of them. But in the back, they had photographs of their kitchens, their menus. It talked about their, their product sourcing and everything. And this was like, I had that book memorized and you know, just reading the menus. And fascinated by it, and at, you know, I regarded it as the pinnacle of gastronomy, you know, in my in my mind, what I wanted to accomplish. But also, there was a certain feeling of knowing that you're not French, you're not gonna. Uh, so, even at a fairly early age, I always thought about how do we apply these principles, this this pursuit of excellence, uh, you know, driven driven by product. Uh, how do we do this? How would an American chef do that in the United States? Um, so, uh, I think that's one of the reasons why the quilted draft I found so appealing. I came back from France in 1984 and I started the quilted and the first few days that I worked there, when I trailed there to see if I was going to be hired or not, uh, I was pretty astonished at the food that was going on. I thought it was way ahead of its time. It was very colorful. It was vegetable centric. Cooking times were, uh, cut way down to, you know, bare minimum. Uh, and uh, I thought I had to work here because to me, this was a step into you know, a great classic American gastronomic experience. Um, so I was very grateful the time I spent there for it. Uh, but that, that was always my thing was to have an American restaurant, a certain sense of place. People would say, oh, it's a French restaurant, but it's an American restaurant. It's an American restaurant that is representative of not only uh, who it is, which is me, but where it was. Yeah, so that, so when did you know the time was right or you were ready to open your own place and what then led you to California and Los Gatos as the location of Manresa? Yeah, I left, I left the New York and the Quilted in 19, at the end of 1988, I went and I spent three months working the harvest in the fall of 88. And then uh, I spent the fall of 88 working the harvest and in the cellar at uh, uh, Vineyard and Winery in, in California. 
called Mount Eden Vineyards, which is in Saratoga, California, which ironically is where I ended up opening my first restaurant. Uh, after that, I went to Japan for, for about six months. And then I came back and I worked in San Francisco at a couple of restaurants, but I was gearing up towards opening my own place. And the first place I opened up is called Sensovi and it was in Saratoga, um, just by way of the space that I found. Um, and it was a bistro. The, the food was uh, you know, noisy and crowded, and, but I was free and I was doing my own cooking. And uh, it was right around that time that I started to learn that, you know, the easiest part of my career from then on was going to be the cooking aspects. Um, learning to be a businessman, um, which I learned something new every day until the day that Menresa closed, uh, is the single hardest thing. It's like motivating employees, motivating your team, and learning how to run a fiscally responsible business model. Those are hard things to do. And when the first restaurant opened up, I was essentially just a dumb line cook. So, so I learned along the way. Yeah, well, I mean, as, as a contributor to my book, Chef Wise, which I'm so grateful to have you a part of and you've offered in the book. You have it's a lovely book. Support. I just saw my first copy of it right now. Thank you. I'm, I'm very excited about it, very proud of it. And But in the book, that's, I mean, just listening to you, what you're saying, like that is something that a lot of the chefs talk about, like the business side of, of, I mean, we have a chapter on business and, and understanding PL and all of that, and it's hard and figuring it out. And I think, yeah. It's, it's very hard. I mean, um, you know, what defines a successful chef? Uh, is it the cooking and the cooking alone? Uh, if a tree falls in a forest and no one hears it, doesn't make a noise. If a chef is a great chef and he cooks great food, but nobody goes to the restaurant and it fails because it's a business failure, is he a great chef? I think there's a very strong argument is that he is not because chefs need an audience. You know, you, you know, they can throw dinner parties. You know, we can all throw dinner parties. We all are great chefs if we're cooking for 12 people. And we prep for two weeks to cook in our, our homes for 12 people. Um, but the consistency of it, doing it day after day, you know, that's, that's, that's the hard part. So you need, you need an audience. And not only do you need an audience, they have to be paying customers. And paying customers pay your employees. It pays your vendors. Uh, maybe it offers incentive for yourself, too, to keep practicing you know, your passion and what you love. Uh, but uh, they need an audience and it needs to be a consistent audience because I, I'm of the camp that, you know, if you're, you know, if you're a good cook, but no one's going to come and eat your food for food for whatever reason, then uh, you're disqualified as a great chef. Yeah, no, I get the analogy for sure. So you opened, though, you figured, you figured out how to do all this because you opened Manresa in 2002 and you had an amazing run for 20 years. You just, you just closed at the end of this last year. December 31st. Um, so talk about, and, and I've, I've been so lucky that I 
had the joy of dining mm. at Manresa. It was 2017 on one of my solo dining experiences, and people want to listen back. It's episode 140. I went to see what number that was. Um, and I was thinking, also, when you're talking, you can cook for me anytime, because I loved <laughs> love my experience, and you're an amazing chef. But so talk about, uh, talk about uh, the opening of Manresa and this whole, the past 20 years and how, I mean, the concept, did it change from the beginning? Was was the goal at the beginning when you talk to get, did you want three Michelin? I mean, was that something that you set out for? Um, I know I just asked a lot no, in that that's, question. That, no, that's fine. That's <laughs> fine. Uh, uh, the, the, the first restaurant opened up, it was called Sensobi. It was a bistro. Uh, it was in a suburban town of Saratoga, at the foothills of the Santa Cruz Mountains. Um, uh, fairly wealthy community. It's a bedroom community in Silicon Valley. So it was during the 90s um, kind of um, boom times. The restaurant was very, very busy. The kitchen was about the size of um, a kitchen in a New York studio apartment. It would be a good analogy. Yeah. And after seven and a half years of, of like spinning around in circles and working, I thought I was going to lose my mind. And the plan was is to uh, move into a space that I could be the best chef that I could possibly be uh, with no kind of real physical constraints. Um, so we found a space in Los Gatos, a beautiful space, uh, right down the road, about to, literally just about five miles from Saratoga. Um, and we found a building and um, I found partners who we bought the building, which turned out to be uh, a big saving grace um, so moving from Sensobi to Manresa was essentially, um, just a move. Same staff went over, additional hires, that sort of thing. And we started planning and buying the property in the boom times of 2000. In 2002, the tech market and the local, you know, mini recession at the bottom just fell out. So we opened up really at the worst possible time, uh, that we could have opened up. And we really struggled. And we had a lot of nights where we did seven covers on a Saturday night. Um, I was my own best employee. I was sleeping a lot at the restaurant, banquet on table six. Uh, <laughs> Classic. I was, yeah, I, I, you know, I'd be the first one to put stocks and start sauces in the morning, accepting the deliveries and that sort of thing. And uh, there was a certain sense of... Um, Refusing to f fail, um, the restaurant lost money. The first four years it was open, and my partner stayed with me simply because we bought the real estate. It was my safety net. They weren't going to close the restaurant and lose their investment in the real estate. If we didn't have that and I was leasing a building, they would have closed me the first two years. Uh, it allowed me to stick it out. It allowed me to figure things out. It, it allowed me to prioritize um, what we talked about earlier about yeah. moving from that phase of being a really good cook, but basically just a dumb line cook who knows nothing about business. And I had to learn about business and I had to learn fast. Um, things got better. Uh, I never was really interested in Michelin stars because there wasn't a Michelin guide yet at that point in time in California. Um, we were well received in reviews, but we were also now we're out of San Francisco, which was kind of the epicenter, Berkeley. Uh, 
San Francisco, we were about an hour south. Uh, the South Bay was considered kind of a culinary wasteland then. Up north of San Francisco, of course, was the wine country. It's essentially it's a Disneyland up there, you know, restaurants and yeah. that sort of thing. And of course, the East Bay, you know, was Berkeley and you know that whole orbit that centered around Alice and and, and Chez Panisse. So the South Bay was kind of like a desert, considered a desert, unrightfully so. I mean, there's there was things going on, uh, lots of great Indian, Vietnamese food. Still is. It's it's, it's a great place to, to eat like that. Um, but then we slowly got better and better. Now we learned how, I think we found footing. Um, and I was shocked as many of us were when Michelin announced that they were coming to the United States. They were going to do New York and then they were going to do San Francisco and the Bay area. And everyone was kind of, I remember being, being, you know, and, and growing up in the culture of like, the importance of France and working in France when the Michelin guides came out and the restaurants you worked in were included was um, it really resonated deeply. They, they took it very, very seriously. And I think a lot of chefs in the United States were kind of shocked and taken aback and surprised and be careful what you wish for mm-hmm. and that sort of thing. So the New York Guide came out in 2006 and the first, no, 2005, I believe, 2006. And then a year later, they did the San Francisco Guide. And the San Francisco Guide, uh, there was, um, we got two stars. We got two stars. And that really kind of changed everything for us. Um, You know, I'm, Michelin's not perfect, but I think, you know, in terms of guides and systems, I think they're about as good as it gets. Anybody who says that, Michelin is superfluous and they don't have the power that they have. They really have no, absolutely no idea what they're talking about. Um, it filled the restaurant. Yeah. It, it filled the restaurants. We had two stars for about nine years. We went through, um, you know, the big recession, the Great Recession, 2000, 2009. Um, you know, we slowed down significantly, but we found ways to stay busy. I think, you know, the Michelin stars played a big part in that. Um, and then we, you know, by year 10, the restaurant being open year 10, 2012, 2014, right before uh, we had a fire, um, um, we developed a loyal client. You know, we were, we were busy, you know, we were, we turned the corner. Yeah. Um, and I would say at that time, uh, you know, 75% 75% of our clients were the Bay Area, San Francisco, all the various area, core, area, area codes around. We had one or two tables from out of state or a table from New York pretty much every night, that sort of thing. About 50% of our guests were uh, repeat customers, regulars, you know, people who live locally and, and came in, 50%. Uh, in 2016, after nine years of two stars, we got, we got our third star. And... Uh, that um, was kind of like a big blur. Uh, it changed everything again completely overnight. Um, we went from 50% of our guests being regular customers to every single table at the restaurant was a unique new visitor to the restaurant for the first time. And Sherry, that never stopped. 
until the restaurant closed in December 31st, 2022, every single visitor coming to the restaurant was a unique first-time visitor. Wow, that's what three did. The, our regular customers, they knew how to get in yeah. if, they, if they wanted to come back. But we went, from 50, we went to where we had one or two tables who had been there before every night. And it never changed. It never slowed. It didn't peak and then slowly wane away every single night. Um, we had three tables in from Europe every night. We had three tables in from Asia every night. Uh, 40% of our clientele were from California. The other 60% were out of state. And what changed? A tire company wrote, a tire company wrote yeah. a guide. That's what happened. Um, this afforded new opportunities to the restaurant. Um, we were able to, to hire and maintain. I think at some point in time we're going to talk about, you know, someone has a question for me. That's yeah, I can ask that question sure, now. Sure, why don't you ask that now? I think it's a good time. <laughs> yeah. I was, I had it, I had it on my mind too. Yeah, it's a pretty obvious answer too, but. <laughs> so um, my last show on episode 349, I had on Rebecca Halpern, who's an award-winning documentary filmmaker of the movie Love Charlie, The mm-hmm. Rise and Fall of Chef Charlie Trotter. And as you're speaking, actually, I was thinking, I was a server at Charlie Trotter's back in 97 and 98. We talked about it on this last show. Um, but things you're talking about with uh, new customers every night uh, sounded familiar. There were a couple of regulars, like Ray Harris, who's yeah, involved in this film. But um, yeah, that's that's my fine dining experience to, to relate to anything um, that you're talking about, but it wasn't my restaurant and I wasn't the chef. So her question is, what's the unexpected downside of having gotten three Michelin stars? And she noted winning three stars is a remarkable and wonderful achievement. It reflects the quality and excellence that you and your staff pour into the dining experience every night. And I agree. So there you go. The downside for me probably isn't the right word. Um, nor unexpected, but even harder than achieving the three stars is keeping them. The guy comes out every year, and that's the thing. You can put tremendous amounts of pressure on yourself um, to get stars, which I disagree with, which we can talk about. But you maintaining them, and um, so I think the hardest part is working to maintain them, but I think there's a way of doing that. And it's just like getting Michelin stars. I think chefs who cook for awards and accolades, um, or cook for stars, they're misplacing their priorities. They're doing a disservice to themselves. Our job is to make guests happy, offer a pleasing experience. And no matter what we charge, there's a perception of value in, in what they're getting at the restaurant. And you know, gastronomic restaurants are not cheap. We're, we're expensive. Um, so, but there can be a perception of value. If people come in and feel that it was worth it and they want to come back, then you've done your job. And this really has to be the main focus of a chef. 
And it only happens with mature chefs, chefs who learn and they become mature in their style and quietly confident in their abilities. And if you cook for the happiness of the guests and the pleasure of the guests and not for stars or accolades, because a lot of times that's to the detriment of the guests, the awards and the stars will come. I really believe that if you're cooking for stars, you're not going to get them or you're going you're gonna to disappoint yourself. You have to, you have to cook for the pleasure of the guests, release the ego to a certain extent to where it's not about you and it's not about the restaurant, but it's really about the happiness of the guests. The stars will happen. If you deserve the stars, they're going to find you and they're going to give them to you. Um, so maintaining them, you got to do the same thing. You just do, you keep doing the same thing, not worrying about the stars, what got you there to begin with. And it, it, it'll happen. I'm, I'm, I'm confident in it. And, you know, uh, you know, chefs go through th three, you can stop me if I'm talking too much. No, no, you can go keep going. You can, you can go through, chefs go through three, I think they go through three very distinct periods. When you're a young cook and you're really getting into it and everything is a new experience and you're learning everything. You're working stations and you're moving to different restaurants and being exposed to all, you know, your style is, is imitation. You are, you're imitating and you're absorbing the cookbooks you read, the cooks that you work with, your mentors, the people that you have working with it. Everything is new and you absorb it. And if you do some cooking on your own, all you're doing is imitating other people. You might be being creative, but you're imitating, you're, you're wearing your influences on your sleeve. And the, long, the more experience you get, the more reference points you develop, and you start moving up, um, maybe becoming sous chefs, that sort of thing, you go enter this period of assimilation where all of a sudden your style is mm, starting to emerge, but you can still you're influenced. You're now starting to filter out your influence. Instead of imitating them, they're starting to transcend. They're trying, they're starting to translate into your own ability and your own style. But you can still see it. I mean, like younger chefs, I can walk into a restaurant, I can look at the menu, and I can immediately tell you what chefs they admire, what cookbooks are on their shelves, and where they probably staged in Europe. Yeah, I, you know, I, yeah, just with the way menus work, right, right. you know, I, you know, I, I can do that. It's a skill. Yeah. And they're still trying to prove it to themselves. They're still trying to prove they want the world to know that they're this great, ambitious chef. They're cooking for themselves. Yeah. They're not cooking for the guests. If the guests don't like something, then it's the guest's fault. It's not the, it's not the chef's fault. They don't understand. The guests don't understand. And then there is this level, the final one. And this is where it becomes, you know, imagination and it's you. It becomes your own style where you have absorbed all these reference points and influences on here. But what's coming out is a style that when people eat your food, it is distinctly your own. There might be these little wisps of where you work or the things that you find really, really important that you learn from a mentor. And that's being part of the chain. That's when you become a part of the chain. And you're quietly confident. Your style is mature. 
And what I find really amazing is too, it's the simplest the chefs are cooking in their lives, right? They're not a million things on the plate. They're not trying to impress. They're letting ingredients and his skill speak for themselves. And this is when guests are really, really happy, including Michelin. Yeah. So work to develop your style. Work to make guests happy. This last stage is when you take guests' comments really, really seriously. There's a reason why they don't like something. And there might, you listen to it and you utilize it, use it. It becomes part of your reference points. So I learn things from guests all the time. Um, so uh, that is a really long-winded way of answering the question if there's a downside to Michelin stars. But it, the answer really is, is that you have to trust your own abilities and you have to cook for your guests. Ambitious chefs know how to cook to please the guests, the guests, but also have a really finely tuned balance where they're still challenging themselves and and engaging themselves to push themselves forward. And that's a happy balance. And that's usually a three-star restaurant. All very well said. And um, I liked the, the long-winded answer was perfect. Before we take a break, what talk a little about this next stage you're in. Uh, because you have Man Race of Bread, you have the Bywater, you have Mentone, and... Um, and uh, yeah, where where are you at now? Um, well, uh, you know, Manresa closed. I, I we closed it. Uh, we celebrated twenty years in July of twenty twenty two. It's incredible. Yeah. I mean, I mean, it's it's beyond incredible. Especially, I I mean, as someone in the industry works with restaurants, like twenty year milestone is yeah. No, congratulations. Thank you. Um, People ask me how I feel about it. I tell them I'm so, so sad and so not sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I loved going to work. I I regarded myself as a working chef. I love to go to the restaurant. I like to be there during service. I like being there with my team. Uh, I think a lot of the success of the restaurants and the personality of the restaurant I'm not saying this blow my horn, but because I was there, I think there was, you know, restaurants are different when the chef's not there and the chef's there. It might be really imperceptible. It might be intangible. Most guests probably don't notice, but I noticed. I, I, I liked going to work. Yeah. And but after 20 years different. and long, long hours, after 20 years, uh, my body... I, it, it started affecting my, my ability to take care of myself physically and, and to keep up. Uh, my knees started hurting. Um, and growing up and all the chefs that I admired when I was a young kid cooking, all my heroes, they all worked until they keeled over and died in the kitchen. Or they drank themselves to death. Or they worked until their knees gave out. And then they drank wine and watched television for the rest of their life. And I swore to myself, I was never going to let that happen to me. You know, I, uh, uh, 
I learned a big lesson with the fire when we had a major fire. I'm not trying to change gears here, but you know, my, my priority switched after the fire because the restaurant was my life up to there for better or for worse. And when the fire, when the rest, when the restaurant burned down, a, a lot of me burned down as well. And I had to rebuild myself. And part of rebuilding myself was not to have the restaurant be on end all in my life. So my health and my well-being was uh, very, very important to me. And I always said that if it started to compromise my quality of life or I didn't enjoy going in, I was going to stop. And that was starting to happen. So, Sherry, I stopped. Good for you. I stopped the restaurant. Yeah. Um, Could it keep going, you know, well, why don't you just hire a great chef to cuisine and you can continue to go and you don't have to go to the restaurant. And, you know, that's, that's not, the, that's not who I am. That's not the kind of chef I am. That's not how man Racer was built. Yeah. So I, I wasn't going to do it. Um, I opening up the two casual restaurants was so much fun. One of them we did during, COVID, Mentone, which opened up. Oh, which, sorry. Oh, no, it's, it's, it's fine. Uh, pizza and, and, and pot, you know, during during the pandemic, during COVID shutdown, when Manresa was essentially a commissary and doing takeout meals, I went and I made pizzas every single day for a year. And I was covered in flour. I was reconnecting back again to when all the little details and working with my hands, which made me fall in love with cooking to begin with. And uh, I loved it so much. I loved it. I loved it. Loved it. And I, I fell in love with the, these casual concepts and, you know, my mind, it, it forced my mind to start thinking uh, uh, about the casual concepts. Uh, the Bywater opened up. Bywater was easy because, you know, I wanted to open up a restaurant, uh, uh, uh about my hometown, yeah. New Orleans, you know, it's a neighborhood joint. It's like never intended for a star or anything like that. It's big, it's noisy, it's got TV sets, it's got an oyster bar, it's got a big bar. The soundtrack's played just a little bit too loud on purpose. I really want to go. Yeah, it's a neighbor, <laughs> it's a neighborhood drop-in joint. You know, yeah. we do we do great po' boys, man, race of bread. You know, they spent a year and a half working on our po' boy bread, really, really happy with it. You know, it's it's a it's a neighborhood joint. Right. And and Mentoni, it's a little bit more, a little bit more ambitious. Uh, it's uh, we call it the cuisine of the Riviera, uh, the food between Nice and Genoa. So I don't want to say it's half French, half Italian, but it's that cuisine along the stretch, uh, along that, that that. And these casual concepts, I'm getting, I'm having so much fun with thinking about it, making these restaurants. I now have the time to make these restaurants be the best restaurants they can be. I'm having a ball doing it. Um, I'm taking time for myself much more than I have in, since I can't remember. Um, I have two equal partners in the bakery, including one, Avery Ruzica, who is the very, very talented uh, baker. Uh, so it's really essentially her vision. And, and uh, the bakery is growing by leaps and bounds. We have now have five retail Stores and cafes. We're just moving to a brand new commissary, eighteen thousand square feet. You know, it's becoming a little regional powerhouse, and these are fun. This is fun. Yeah. 
Um, so uh, people say, well, what are you going to do? You're not going to Man Rate? I got plenty to keep me busy. <laughs> I got plenty to keep me busy, but it's, it's being busy on my own terms right now. Um, I'm continuing to travel a little bit. Here I am in New York. I'm cooking at the Paul A this weekend, which is why I'm here. Um, cooking old friend, uh, Michelle Toilro and Daniel Ballou. They're kind of regulars at this event. Uh, and, uh, I, you know, my, my schedule's filled. You know, I'm cooking in France this year. I'm cooking in Italy this year. I'm cooking in the Dominican Republic. I'm cooking in Mexico. And it's pure, unadulterated joy, you know. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm I traveling see. and I'm cooking on my own terms, um, you know, so like I said, the closing of Man Race, I'm, I'm very, very sad, but so not sorry. Yeah, I see it. I feel it. I think anyone listening to this show will as well. And I don't want to say you earned it, but in a sense, I mean, you earned it. Like you've worked really hard and yeah. you've achieved so much. And it's the, fun, the funny thing is, too, I, and, you know, I don't, I, don't want to, I don't want this to sound the wrong way, but, you know, when Renee announced that he was closing Noma, to your notice, you know, if it's, you know, I got a lot of calls. I got a lot of calls from press and, you know, they, they tried to make me fit into that narrative that fine dining is dead. I mean, we've been listening to fine dining supposed to be dead 40 years ago. Right. What makes fine dining great and what makes it so creative is that it, it always adjusts. It always leads. It's always ahead. And people say, well, fine dining, who eats fine dining? Who wants... The, you know, the opulence, the gold, the silver, and the crystal, and all that. You know, where, where are those places? The, you know, the, that's like a stereotype. You know, great fine dining, you know, has adjusted, and they continue to lead in ideas and everything. So people have presented to me that the reason why we're closing Man Race is because I, we find it unsustainable, and it's so grueling that I'm being forced to, no, I am closing this restaurant on my own terms. Man Race was a successful restaurant. We were busy all the time. Um, um, uh, my partners are happy because there's a sale of real estate involved. Um, they understand that my decision, I've been very honest and transparent with them for the past three years. I'm saying, you know, guys, my knees are hurting. My knees are hurting and we're going to be pulling this plug soon enough. So it wasn't a, a giant shock. So me closing the restaurant is not a sign of the times of the so-called death of fine dining. It is purely on our terms and is in no way related to, to uh, what Noma or anybody else is saying. I think there might be a little yes. bit of burnout, but that might be the, the only connection. Oh. I have big beliefs in fine dining. Fine dining will adjust. I agree. Um, we have, take a break now, but I just wanted to note uh, two things. One, when I dined at your restaurant, I remember... You were there. I had a wonderful conversation with you in the kitchen. It was very special. And like the we were talking about being a presence at your restaurant and being there. And it makes, I think it makes a huge difference. And it, it really, it did um, make my evening uh, so special beyond your whole team and the amazing hospitality and service and food and everything. But That's good to hear. it just, it just, um, it was such a special evening for me to yeah, have that. That, that makes I had, me happy to hear. I had met you very briefly before. We didn't really know each other, but like you were so welcoming and um, kind. And um, yeah, it was really special for me. So, and congratulations really on, on 
all you've achieved. It's, it's incredible um, beyond words. And one other thing I'm going to mention, which I found out just before we started doing this show, was there's the Taste Awards. And uh, my show was nominated for a couple categories. And I just found out. Thank you. I found out. Do, 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 I won as the best wow. host in the cat, and and I'm tied. With you found a, that out today. I just found out they posted, they sent an email with like some of the categories. I'm <laughs> so so I just thank you. Congratulations. Um, I'm I'm like super excited. It's it's a tie between me and um, Christopher Kimball's um, Milk Street Television or TV. I think that's what his show's called, and. Um, I'm now going to have to look. They're they're doing awards ceremony on March 13th in Los Angeles. So I think I'm going to book a quick trip to L.A. Oh, that's great. Why not? Yeah. Um, and and on my last show, I mentioned these awards with Rebecca Halpern, who asked the question for you, because she was nominated. And I saw that she won for Best Director, and she's in L.A., so I'll have to let her know I'm going to come out. And I just had to announce that. It's that's very great. cool. Congratulations. Thank you. There you go. Woohoo. And thank you to all, all you out there listeners because um, the reason the reason this show and I won is because of you. So thank you. Okay, now let's take a little break and we will come back. We'll play my speed round, talk some industry news. I have my solo dining experience and the final question. So stay with us. This is all in the industry on Heritage Radio Network. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Roberta's was founded in Bushwick in 2008 and has become one of the most iconic restaurants in the country. HRN made its home inside of Roberta's in 2009, and together they have become part of the DIY fabric of the neighborhood. Roberta's, the pizza restaurant, is open for lunch and dinner seven days a week and serves much more than just the famous wood-fired pizzas. Their team dreams up new salads, pastas, and sandwiches on the regular. Roberta's Tiki Bar is alive and well in the back garden, serving up frozen drinks in the summer and hot toddies in the winter. Stop by the bakery and takeout spot next door for fresh breads, sticky buns, and pizzas to go. But Roberta's also extends beyond Bushwick, with multiple locations in New York City and now in Los Angeles. You can also find their frozen pies in grocery stores around the country. The spirit of Roberta's, like Heritage Radio Network, is everywhere. Here's to many more years of pizza-powered radio. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. Welcome back to All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Sherry Bayer. My guest today is David Kinn. She's an internationally recognized chef with more than two decades of culinary excellence at his three Michelin-starred restaurant, Manresa, Most Gotchas, California. And he's here with me in New York City on location. And uh, it's time for my speed round. So, uh-oh. uh-oh. I'm nervous. I don't know. I'm <laughs> Out of everything you've accomplished, I think you can handle my speed round. <laughs> my um, hands are over the buzzer. <laughs> <laughs> so what this is, is I'm going to name a couple things and you get to pick your preference, such as chocolate or vanilla. Oh, okay. You get a choice. What's it? What's uh That's, that's yes. the sample. Yes. yes. Okay. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> Here we go. Eat in at home or eat out at a restaurant. 
Uh, eat out of a restaurant. Indoor dining or alfresco dining? Indoor. Very, you got that. Very solid on that. Okay. Wine, beer, cocktail, mocktail, or champagne? Uh, wine. Tasting menu or a la carte? Um, a la carte. Switches. Going back to a la carte. Manresa was only tasting menu, correct? At the end, correct. Okay. At the end? Yeah. At the beginning, you were a la carte? Yeah, we were a la carte. Did that change with the stars? No, it changed with customers, what customers wanted. Okay. Good to know. Okay. Um, small plates or large plates? Um, large plates. Communal table or chef's counter? Mm, chef's counter. Tipping or all-inclusive charge? All-inclusive charge. Quick on that one, too. Oyster po' boy or muffaletta? Yes. <laughs> I agree oyster with that, too. Boy, yeah, oyster po' boy by, by a hair. Do you have muffaletta, too, at your restaurant? Yes, we do. We have a muffaletta po' boy. Of course. Yeah. <laughs> How about writing your own cookbook or being a contributor to another cookbook or another book? Writing writing my own cookbook. You've done, you've done two? No? Correct. Okay. Yeah. Amazing. Okay, two more. Cheese plate or dessert? Cheese plate, unless ice cream's involved. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. And uh, Manhattan, Brooklyn, or Los Gatos? Uh, Manhattan. Woohoo. Nice. That's the game. Well, that was easy. I, I did not have any doubts with, with that with you. Um, so... Awesome. Okay, so for industry news, fittingly enough, I just saw an article yesterday that I sent to you to discuss, um, and it was in the Washington Post, and it's entitled, When Michelin Tells Chefs They've Lost Stars, Mental Health is Top of Mind. And this is by Annabelle Timsit. And it's talking about, what, you know, Michelin and what this is, particularly article was talking about how the Michelin Guide's forthcoming French edition is about to come out. And it was saying how there's two well-known chefs. Two downgrades, um, yep. Uh, Guy Savoy, and I don't know how to pronounce his last name. Christian Conenso. Thank you. It's <laughs> like going to butcher that. Mm. Um, but for, according to this article, they're, they're going to be downgraded from three Michelin stars to two. It's talking about how the guide's international director got in his car, and he went to personally let them know um, how it's, you know, it's a very sensitive subject, and there's been, I mean, there's been suicides over Michelin stars, according to things I've read, um, and... Speculative. Okay. That's, uh, I, I don't know personally, of course, um, but it's just, I think, pointing out how it's a very sensitive topic or thing to happen when you lose a star, uh, I should stop talking because you're the chef who has stars and know more about this than me. <laughs> um, What's your take? Well, you know, Michelin is, is famously a closed book. I think I may be wrong, but my assumption is, is if you're going from three to two or two to one, that you have been given a warning. I don't think it comes out of the blue one year that you're demoted. I think. How so? I, I think that 
they Michelin knows that the possibility of an economic impact on the restaurant is huge. They know that when the people they give a star to someone, that's going to be a huge economic impact, and if they take a star away, that's going to be a huge uh, economic impact. My guess is that these restaurants they have gone from three to two that the year before, perhaps the past two years before, that they have been given warnings. They have been given warnings that there's signs of inconsistencies or whatever their reasons are and that they're being closely watched. That's my guess. Um, I don't think they come in and they out of the blue. Yeah. Take it away. I think the chefs know they're given a warning. They say, we, we whatever the issue might be, it might be inconsistency in, in the sauces or, or I guess, you know, whatever it may be, and that we're watching. Yeah. And these are issues concerning to us. And if they're not corrected, then they do it. Um, I think, again, purely speculative. My Michelin did not demote anybody during the COVID years. They knew the serious impact that it affected everything. There's there's labor shortages everywhere. The cost of goods is skyrocketing. But now, as things return back to normal, some restaurants are dealing with it, and other restaurants are not dealing with it. I think I actually saw Gwen Bell, the, the director, he actually made a statement. He says, is it still tough for the restaurant business? Yes. But some are pulling out of it. And you know what? Life is tough for all of us right now. You know, there's a lot of other businesses. And so this is the new world. And for us to stay relevant, yeah, we have to call them as we see it. Yeah. I, I... And so, I, you know, I, I feel bad. I feel, I feel bad. Uh, what's not in the news is that there are, I think, nine or 11 uh, two-star restaurants being demoted to one in France. And to me, that's even, that's even bigger news than the, than the, grand, the grand Palaces. Do you think it's just... Well... How did well? I'm like, how do you know that? <laughs> um, it's it, it's 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 already yeah. It's, it's already I saw out the, there. I saw, okay. I saw okay. the press release. Yeah. Well, this I saw actually. I saw two articles on this particular well, I had subject. Dinner, I had dinner with sixty French winemakers yesterday. Okay. What do you think everybody was talking about? Yeah, you're a little in the know. <clears throat> um, I, yeah. I mean, I think I think like anything, uh, a personal touch and letting someone know about. Uh, is is good to let someone know rather than just making the announcement or printing it in the press. So the fact that, you know, doing this outreach. But, um, yeah, I agree. I mean, at losing a star whatever level, is it's got to hurt and be sensitive to that person. Guide comes out every year. We can get him back next year. True. Motivation. Mm-hmm. All right. So there you go. That's, that's the news this week. <laughs> <laughs> it's big news. It's big news. Um, uh, yeah. All right. Any more thoughts of that, or else I'm going to move to my solo dining experience. Solo dining experience. All right. This week, it's at Nest at Niama Private Islands Maldives. Yes, it is. Wow. <laughs> yes, very fancy this week. So. Here's the rundown. The location, it's, uh, I can't read this, Duhal Atoll in uh, the Republic of the Maldives. It's basically a pro- an island in the middle in the middle of the ocean. Uh, the concept, it's a treehouse restaurant. So it's perched in the trees. It's, um, 
It has an avant-garde presentation for Thai, Chinese, Japanese, and Indonesian chefs' cuisine. And it's at this resort I was at, the Naima Private Islands Maldives. So why did I go? Well, I was on this big, epic trip for my big 50th birthday. Woohoo! And um, bucket list destination. I always wanted to go to the Maldives. And um, so I was at this wonderful resort and this is they had a few different restaurant concepts and this one sounded really cool and special so I was like let me celebrate my birthday there that evening so my experience so I had at this place I had my personal concierge was very very wonderful plush service I was spoiled for a couple days um he made the reservation for me I did it at eight o'clock after it got dark because I wanted to watch the sunset as I like to do um and this was like in the middle of the trees the part of the island so um it was it was very cool you went upstairs to I was seated at a table um high up in the trees um and it was it was it was dark candlelit uh and uh, I, the, interesting, it's such a weird side note to say, but all the menus, they had this like fun light at all the restaurants that with attached to the menu, they would bring to you so you could actually see the menu. And I was like, I hadn't really seen that much here. So I'm like, oh, that's the new, the new way of reading menus, having a little flashlight attached to the restaurant, uh, attached to the menu. Anyways, um, I, I had a lovely, lovely dinner. I'll tell you what I, I got. And at the end, because it was my birthday, the two servers came out and sang happy birthday to me in English as well as uh, Mal Maldivian. And I took a video out of it. It's on Instagram. It's not a very good video, but it was super special. It was, um, it really, they went out of their way to, um, to make me feel good. And I, I had a lovely time. And so what did I get? So for dinner, I had 12 slices of sashimi of the day. They had fresh salmon, tuna belly, yellowtail, and a white fish and hamachi. And it came, it had a cool presentation in this like globe of ice. It was pretty fancy. And then I also just went with another appetizer. I got a king crab gyoza, which was coriander, chest, coriander chestnut, soy sauce, vinegar, and roasted chili oil. I had Sam Pellegrino to drink. And again, at the end, I had this mango birthday cake, which was really, really great. So my take, I enjoyed it all. The sashimi was, it, I was impressed. It was like, I'm in the middle, of, I'm on this island in the middle of nowhere, and they're flying in some really quality good stuff or, or getting, getting quality fish there. So um, it was awesome. I really enjoyed the gyoza as well. It had some nice dipping sauces. Um, and the mango cake was, was lovely. So the ambiance, literally in a treehouse, uh, it's uh, it's part of this. You navigate as the jungle of the labyrinth of wooden walkways on to your private perch in the treetops. That's their description, um, and I'd say it's perfect for I'd say a date in the sky in a sense. Interesting tidbit. On this property, they also have an underwater restaurant called Sub Six, which is only open for lunch and. Above it is a, a restaurant called The Edge. And I went over, I checked it out um, in the evening to watch the sunset, actually. But I went downstairs and saw it. It's pretty cool. It's underwater and has all these glass windows and you see all the fishes. <laughs> um, and another night I had dinner at a restaurant called Tribal, which is Afro-Latin cuisine. I had these really awesome Mozambican prawns. They were like these giant prawns, really great.
So pers personal fun fact, as I said, I was on this, this solo trip for my 50th, um, place I always wanted to go to and spoil myself a little bit. Um, to get to this island, I took a 50-minute seaplane from the Mali airport. Um, it's, it's, there's one resort per island out there. It's pretty fascinating. And it was a long trip to get all the way to the Maldives. It's about 30 hours of travel each way, but worth it. <laughs> the cost of the meal was $90, not including a service charge and tax. Would I go back? Sure. Yes. Anytime. <laughs> Their website is, uh, niyama.com and, uh, Instagram at niyama Maldives. So there you go. Worth a special journey. Very special journey. Um, yeah, it was. It was. It was really. You know, in the, I think about hospitality all the time, and it's uh, this this island, uh, this resort in particular, just blew me away with their hospitality. It's like how people make you feel. I mean, I was there on this solo trip by myself for my birthday, and they went beyond any expectation just to make me feel good. Um, I would highly recommend this place to anyone. So thank you. Thank you so much. Okay, so it's time for my final question or the final question. So my next guest is Gia Vecchio. She is the founder of Foxglove Communications, a publicity marketing and strategy agency focusing on hospitality. Gia's clients include chefs Alain Shia, New Orleans guy, uh, Ashley Christensen, Gregory Gorday. She also works with the Dead Rabbit and Tales of the Cocktail. Uh, is a friend. She's awesome. And uh, David, can you please ask a question for Gia? Oh, boy. Okay. Um, okay, here's a question. What is going to be the future of a restaurant PR and marketing? Because I personally think that there is a glut of the chef as personality when really what it's all about is the restaurant and the restaurant experience and not any direct interaction with the chef. Is there going to be a shift in PR and marketing towards the actual restaurant, more of an emphasis on the restaurant as opposed to the marketability and, and of the particular chef? This does not apply to chefs with multiple restaurants, where the common thread, of course, is the chef. Okay. Wow. I'm going to ask her. Glad you're asking her, not me. <laughs> we'll talk about it, though. It will be a good I think, conversation. I think the cult of personality with chefs is out of control. And, yeah. And it's also, you know, the same biography, the same awards, the same nominations. Yawn. Tell me about you. the restaurant. What are you going to tell me about a restaurant that makes me want to go to eat there? It has nothing to do with the, the marketability of the chef. Okay. What does the restaurant offer? I'm going to find out. Yeah, PR is hard. Where is the metric to measure? I was, for the longest time, I avoided PR marketing. I was like, how this money I'm going to spend, how am I going to be able to measure the butts you're going to put in the seats in my restaurants? It's hard. But then you found value in it. You did have PR for a long time. Uh, yes, we did have PR for a long time. And I always told, I, you know, I, you know, I, I wanted the brand of Manresa being promoted more than the brand of myself. I think in the long run, it would, it would, 
suit better, create more of a um, rock solid legacy about why people should go to the restaurant. You build everything around the cult of, of the chef. What do you do when the chef's not there? Which after a period of time when he's famous, he isn't anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's all good points. And um, I'll find out. <laughs> oh, it's she, gonna she, be... she might hate that question. No, no. I think she's going to, knowing her, she's going to embrace it. She's going to embrace it. I bet she's going to have a really good answer too. Good. So everyone needs to tune in. <laughs> um, that's the show. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. me. This was a lot of fun. Oh, well, it was fun for me, too. It was a privilege. Thank you. Congratulations on 20 plus everything else you've accomplished. I can't even name it all. One day at a time. Big dinner tomorrow. We're cooking here in New York. Looking forward to it. It's going to be epic. Epic is my year, my word of the year. Um, thank you. Congratulations on everything. Thank I you. feel very honored to have the time to talk with you and to know you and to have enjoyed your food and I look forward to whatever you do next. Thank you very much. Thank you. My guest today has been David Kinn. She's an internationally recognized chef with more than two decades of culinary experience at his three Michelin starred restaurant Manresa in Los Gatos, California. He currently has the restaurants The Bywater, Metone, Mentone, Mentone, and Manresa Bread. So check those out. And he is a contributor, contributor to my book coming out, Chef Wise, Life Lessons from Leading Chefs Around the World by Fiden. Our publishing date is now May 3rd. Check it out because you'll get David's advice in the book. <laughs> um, and you can find out, uh, you can go to his and website. 176 others. 117 total. Oh, so, 117. Yeah, 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 yeah. But yeah. Yeah, but, but you're a very important part of the book, and I'm so oh. honored you're in the book. So, yes, check that out. Um, his website's manracerrestaurant.com, and you can follow him at David Kinch. You can follow me at Sherry Bayer, at Bayer PR, and at All, all Industry. My Facebook page is All in the Industry, and my websites are bayerpublicrelations.com, sherrybayer.com, and allintheindustry.com. All of our shows are archived at heritageradionetwork.org. We are also on iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify. Thanks to my engineer today, Armin. Thanks again to David. I'm your host and producer, Sherry Bayer. And thank you, as always, for being part of All in the Industry. Bye. All in the Industry is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.